Okay, wait, wait, just a second. I got to plug this. Yow! It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 143 for May 17th, 2009. It's been two years since I first wrote about the magic of a program called Macro Express. Insight Software is the company that wrote it, and since then, the company's been working hard to improve the product. They now have a version 4, also known as Macro Express Pro. Insight Software is still selling version 3 in addition to the newer product, and in fact, Insight has a total of four applications that automate tasks in one way or another. The biggest problem you might have is figuring out which would be the right one for you. In 2007, I wrote, if only somebody would make a macro express for mowing the lawn, washing dishes, or doing the laundry. I can't help you with any of those tasks, but if you have some computer-based tasks that you need to repeat and repeat and repeat, you're going to like macro express. It's a $40 program that you can teach to perform complex tasks even when you're sleeping. What I said back then is true now, only more so. For $20 more, you can buy Macro Express Pro. For $15 less, you could choose Keyboard Express. And for just $20, Insight has Short Keys, a utility that allows you to set up replacement text or paragraphs for user-defined keystrokes. If you've used autocorrect in a word processor, you know how this works, except that Short Keys monitors the keyboard activity and works with any Windows program. Macro Express and Macro Express Pro go far beyond just repeating keystrokes. Macros can be programmed to interact with the user, ask questions, then select an action based on the response. The Pro version is even capable of running more than one macro at a time, and it can lock the computer's keyboard and mouse while a macro is running. Now that's an important feature, and it's new. It's important because a user might easily forget that a macro is running, particularly if you have some long-running macro. You might have a macro that runs for 15, 20 minutes, maybe an hour. You could forget about that and try to use the computer while Macro Express is playing back a series of actions. That would be about the same as interrupting one of your coworkers, shoving them out of the way and starting to type on their keyboard. Wouldn't work very well. So the ability to lock the keyboard and mouse during playback eliminates the problem. Both Macro Express and Macro Express Pro will run a macro based on the user's typing a hotkey combination, Control-Alt-R, for example, or a certain sequence of keys. I've defined period-period-DTM to type the date and the time. You can also have macros run on a specific schedule when a system event occurs, or when Macro Express detects a specific mouse action. When it comes to expanding keystrokes, there is nothing that beats Macro Express. I mentioned my very simple date and time macro. I type period, period, DTM, and Macro Express gives me back the date and the time. I can format the date any way I want it. I can format the time any way I want it. Or, for example, maybe if I had a business that received a lot of inquiries by email... 
I could create a series of macros that would then be used to reply to messages that ask common questions. Let's imagine for a moment that I have a company that makes the Super Gizmo product, and I frequently receive emails about this asking about the product, asking about the guarantee, and asking how to order it. Well, I could respond to that by typing dot dot sg, and at that point, Macro Express would type all of my stored text as much as I wanted, sentences, paragraphs, entire pages, all about Super Gizmo. And since the writer asked about the guarantee, I could then type dot dot guar. Macro Express would type an explanation of the guarantee. And finally, since there was a question about how to order, I could type dot dot ord. And at that point, Macro Express would type the terms and conditions, mailing address, types of payments I accept, and any other information that the buyer would need. And the nice thing is, you have complete control over the text and how it's formatted. You can change it at any time. So a reply that might once have taken you ten minutes to compose individually could be prepared and sent in ten seconds. I mentioned the dot dot that I use in front of these keyboard expansions, and the reason I use that is Macro Express needs something. To tell it that it should treat the following characters as a command. This keeps the application from incorrectly typing the explanation of the order terms. If I just happen to type ORD, you can change the activation keys to anything you want. The default, I believe, is pound pound. I decided I didn't like that because it required me to press the shift key. And I know I'll never start a real word with two periods, so that's a safe choice for me, and it's real easy on the keyboard. How about something a little more complicated? Maybe you need to send eight data files to an FTP site every weekday. To obtain the files, you have to run a report generator program, and each report takes several questions about the date range to use, then runs for a few minutes and places the report file on your computer's desktop. When the reports have all run, you have to start your FTP application and transmit the files. So you spend 40 minutes or so doing this task every day. Macro Express can start the report generator, answer the questions based on the current date, watch for files to show up on the desktop, and transmit them for you. If you want, it can even write a log file to prove that all the steps occurred and when they occurred. I have noticed one very small flaw with Macro Express Pro. Sometimes it hangs when Windows is closing down. This isn't a serious problem, just a minor annoyance. Bottom line for Macro Express: stop repeating yourself. Use Macro Express. Any computer task that you have to do more than once is a candidate for Macro Express. Buy Macro Express for use in your office, and there's a real good chance that everybody who sees it will want a copy. Fortunately, Insight Software has a volume discount plan starting at just two users. For more information, visit the Macro Express website. You'll find a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. And as for cats, well. Four. At the end of April, Microsoft released Service Pack 2 for Office 2007. The size of the Service Pack may suggest the scope of the changes, improvements, tweaks, and modifications. It is 30 times the size of the original IBM hard drive. That's right. The update is nearly 300 megabytes. If you have anything but a fast connection, the download is going to take quite a while. Installation takes about ten minutes or so. Does require a reboot. So if you're wondering what's in there, well, two words: a lot. 
You probably know that Microsoft has licensed Adobe technology so that you can create PDF files directly from the applications using the Save As function. Service Pack 2 makes the resulting PDF documents better and also improves output to the XPS format. XPS? Uh, Yeah, that's a relatively new format for Microsoft. And perhaps not too surprisingly, it competes with PDF. As is typical for Microsoft standards, XPS is proprietary. So if you need a PDF-type document, just create a PDF. Forget about XPS. SP2 includes both technologies in the base program. Users of the original version or the SP1 version had to download a separate add-in and then install it. Microsoft says Outlook starts and shuts down faster. Uh, Perhaps it does, but it's not a big change. Microsoft says that the underlying data structure of the Outlook calendar has been improved to make it more reliable. But if you use the synchronizer tool for the Google Calendar, there is a chance that Outlook will crash every time the synchronizer runs because it has to load a part of the application to perform the task. Outlook will also repeatedly crash on open until you start it in safe mode and then close Outlook normally. After that, both of those problems go away and everything works properly. I have seen this behavior on some, but not all, of the computers that I've run the updates on. The installer will place an Outlook icon in the quick start area of your computer's taskbar, even if you didn't have one there before. And... Why do they do this? If I wanted an icon for Outlook in my quick start bar, I would have put one there myself. Microsoft Office continues to be the unquestioned leader on the desktop. OpenOffice supporters claim that the open source application is a match for Microsoft's products. For some users, it might be. But for power users who have mastered the intricacies of Microsoft Office... OpenOffice is simply far too limited and far too limiting. There is no real database application. The presentation application doesn't compete even with earlier versions of PowerPoint, and the integration from one application to another is nowhere near as complete as in the Microsoft product. Still, for a lot of people, OpenOffice could do all that's needed. Service Pack 2 for Office 2007 offers support for a rival document format, Open Document Format, or ODF. This is what's used by Sun's Star Office, OpenOffice, and IBM. This is at least in part a response to actions taken last year by the European Commission. The EC had been investigating antitrust allegations and promised to keep a close eye on the company's interoperability claims. The EC's antitrust commissioner, Neely Crows, even went so far as to recommend that European businesses and governments use software based on open standards. We'll hear more from Neely Crows later in the program. One of the more amazing applications you can install on your Windows, Mac, or Linux computer is Google Earth. And the latest version is even better than before. Google Earth began life as Keyhole. The name reminds us of the original military spy satellites from the late 1970s. KH devices, they were called. Keyhole came to be in 2001. Google acquired it three years later. Initially, the company was funded in part by Intrinsic Graphics and Sony, in part by the CIA, and in part by venture capitalists. The original Earth viewer became Google Earth, and now Google Earth can take us quickly and silently below the oceans, 
or out into space. And it's sometimes misunderstood. Some people think the satellite imagery is real-time. It isn't, of course, but when New Orleans flooded following Hurricane Katrina in 2005, some conspiracy nuts accused Google of being in cahoots with the federal government by suppressing images of the flood. Some of the images used by Google Earth are relatively recent. Others are several years old. Some areas are shown in high resolution, while others, particularly rural areas, have only fuzzy representations. And in some cases, the images have been blurred intentionally to obscure certain details. But still, it's an amazing tool, or toy. It's both. It's a way to examine an area you might be thinking about visiting or moving to. It's a way to take a look at a building that's occupied by a company you're thinking of doing business with. It's a way to visit an area that you might otherwise never see. And now it's kind of a wayback machine, able to display satellite images from the early days of satellites for some areas. And it's able to take you under the oceans in a few spots, able even to take you for a quick side trip to Mars. To go undersea, all you need to do is select and expand the ocean layer, and then double-click on one of the items on the list. The underwater features are an interesting start, but the implementation I found to be a bit disappointing probably because it's so good on the surface and so weak below the sea. Probably it always will be weak with below-sea images. I mean, after all, it's difficult to see what's going on down there. You're limited to still pictures, the occasional video from organizations like the BBC or National Geographic. All of these are interesting, of course, but they pale in comparison to the resources available on the surface of the planet through Google Earth. And I mentioned Mars? Yeah, you might be surprised at how easy it is to get to Mars and how fast. Select it from the drop-down menu and you're off. Flight time is about 10 seconds. You can select one of the NASA rover missions and you'll see the path the rover traveled. In some cases, you have the opportunity to examine 360-degree photos taken from various vantage points. Although Mars is the only planet with any images from Google Earth, you'll find some interesting astronomical views in the sky section. Starting with a view of a large part of the sky, you can then zoom in to learn more about the stars and the solar system. But the main show is still down here on the Earth. You might be surprised, I was certainly, to find out how close Seoul, South Korea is to the border with North Korea. And you might be surprised to see the distance from Seoul to Pyongyang is about the same as the distance from Columbus to Cleveland. It's no surprise that views of Pyongyang show scant vehicular traffic. But I did wonder why so many of the roofs are blue. I found one large building, zoomed in on it, and found that it's a train station. As I looked around Pyongyang, I found more open space and more greenery than I would have ever expected for North Korea's capital, but still very few vehicles. Still, I was surprised by how many street-level photographs were available. Lots of blue markers all over the map, showing pictures available from one or more photographers. Then I headed south to Seoul, South Korea. More tall buildings, of course, a lot more traffic. Didn't find any blue roofs. And, of course, far more pictures at street level. There was one that I just happened to run across by accident, the building where Samsung is headquartered in Seoul, South Korea. Then I took off to Izhevsk, Russia. And if you check the TechBiter Worldwide website, again, that's www.techbiter.com, you'll find an image in the general neighborhood of a man that I've been corresponding with off and on for more than 30 years. 
Izhevsk is hundreds of miles from Moscow, and the satellite imagery isn't particularly good, but I was able to find the street and, I believe, the general vicinity where my correspondent lives. If you haven't yet downloaded the free version of Google Earth, you might want to put that on your schedule. The download isn't really very large, but to use Google Earth, you do need a high-speed connection to the Internet. The bottom line on Google Earth, well, it's hard to argue with a product that is free, useful, fun, and entertaining. So, five cats. Underwater is underwhelming, but the new Mars feature is pretty cool. If you're still using a dial-up connection, this could be almost enough to convince you that broadband is worth the cost. If you'd like more information, check the Google Earth website. You'll find a link to that site from the TechBiter Worldwide website. In short circuits, it seemed to me that Google went missing, but that turned out not to be the case. I normally maintain several Google sessions in Firefox, the search engine and portal page with Einstein quotations, cats, and some other features that amuse me. One of my Gmail accounts, Google Calendar with links to my calendar, my wife's calendar, and both daughters' calendars, a corporate calendar, and the U.S. holiday calendar. On Tuesday of this past week, they were all missing. The problem turned out not to be Google. A network timeout is not something one commonly sees with Google, but all of the windows that should have had Google content showed the message, network timeout. So my first attempt to find out what was wrong involved pinging Google. There was no response. I then tried a trace route to see if I could identify the point of failure. The last reachable IP address belonged to AT&T in Indianapolis. Because I could reach that address, the problem was somewhere beyond AT&T in Indianapolis. So I tried a trace route from Central Ops. This clearly indicated the problem wasn't with Google, but it still didn't identify the location of the problem. The trace route from Central Ops went right through, no problems. It gave me enough information to know that if I needed to use Google for something, I could reach it by using the IP address, which is what I did for the next couple of hours until everything started working properly again. Normally, problems of this nature reach the Internet Traffic Report or the Internet Storm Center. Both were silent about these outages. About three hours later, full connectivity returned, and I still have no idea what happened. I promised more about the European Commission, and it looks like some U.S. businesses are going to be forced to play fair in Europe. The European Commission, finding that Intel used illegal tactics to shut out advanced micro-devices and keep prices artificially high in Europe, has fined the chipmaker $1.5 billion. In addition to paying the fine, the EU says that Intel must halt sales tactics that are illegal. Intel was found guilty of using illegal rebates, among other tactics, to win business and to keep AMD out of the market. EU Competition Commissioner Nelly Crows predictably said that sustained violations of antitrust rules cannot be tolerated. Intel CEO Paul Ottolini predictably said that Intel had done nothing illegal. In 2004, the EU hit Microsoft with what was considered at the time to be a huge fine for anti-competitive practices. The Intel fine was twice as large as the one assessed against Microsoft. AMD's Executive Vice President for Legal Affairs, Tom McCoy, also spoke predictably. He said the industry will benefit from an end to Intel's monopoly-inflated pricing, and European consumers will enjoy greater choice, value, and innovation. So which sales practices were so bad? 
Well, we really don't know. That's because the EU won't release the 542-page ruling until business secrets have been removed. And maybe you're getting ahead of me here. But yes, that means that neither Intel nor AMD has actually seen the full legal opinion yet. The EU Commission says that Hewlett-Packard, Acer, Dell, Lenovo, and NEC were all affected by Intel's practices. For example, Intel is accused of giving rebates to one computer manufacturer from November 2002 to May 2005, but the rebates were conditional on the manufacturer purchasing at least 95% of its CPUs from Intel. Volume purchasing deals are okay, they're fine, but requiring the buyer to buy 95% of its products from you to get the deal? I don't think so. One might make a case for the volume discount line, but the EU Commission says that Intel also paid computer manufacturers to halt or delay the launch of products that contained AMD processors. Now, if that practice isn't illegal, it certainly should be. Intel's business practices are being reviewed by Japan's Fair Trade Commission, the Attorney General of New York State, and the Federal Trade Commission. So it appears that Intel's attorneys will be gaining a lot of trial lawyer experience in coming months. Coming up this Wednesday, I'll have the opportunity to talk about Adobe and some of the features that I've discussed on TechBiter Worldwide in recent months. I'll be doing that at the Columbus Computer Society. In the interest of allowing everybody to get home well before midnight, I will have to seriously limit the number of features I can talk about, but I will try to use any time you give me wisely. The meeting starts at 7 p.m., May 20th. It's at the Kilgore Building, 6565 Kilgore Place in Dublin, Ohio. And you can find a map on the TechBiter Worldwide website. By the way, the public is welcome. There is no admission charge. I have, however, suggested that the Columbus Computer Society charge a fee for those who want to leave. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.